This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. My name is Hiba I'm an associate professor of history here at Villanova, and I also direct the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies. So thank you for sharing your evening with us. Uh, we're thrilled to see such a good turnout. <laughs> and I am absolutely thrilled to have this. I, I have been waiting for this topic <laughs> for so long. So I'm really pleased to be able to introduce our, uh, our speaker this evening. Dr. Jill McCorkle is an associate professor of sociology and criminology here at Villanova. She's also affiliated with our Africana Studies program. There's some seats over here if you want to, um, which is directed by Dr. Lucky. I think some of the, the Africana Studies students are here tonight. Uh, Professor McCorkle is a faculty affiliate of the Center for Research on Families at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She received her PhD in sociology at the University of Delaware. Her research investigates the social and political consequences of mass incarceration in the United States. She focuses primarily on how law and systems of punishment perpetuate race, class, and gender-based inequities. In 2014, she received the Distinguished Scholar Award from the American Society of Criminology Division of Women in Crime for her research <coughs> excuse me, in these areas. Her recent book titled Breaking Women, Gender, Race, and the New Politics of Imprisonment, published in 2013, explores the consequences of the war on drugs and the get tough policies for women prisoners. Using detailed participation observation in candid interviews with prisoners, staff, and state officials, she examines how prison privatization and the racial politics of the drug war collapse the rehabilitation ideal and in the process, transformed the logic and practice of punishment in women's prisons. Her book was selected by the Society for the Study of Social Programs as one of five finalists for the prestigious C. Wright Mills Award. Dr. McCorkle is currently involved in developing Villanova's undergraduate degree program at SCI, Gratford, Gratford, Gratford? Gratford. <laughs> the largest maximum security prison in Pennsylvania, she teaches undergraduate courses there and runs a monthly seminar series that offers faculty members from area universities the opportunity to discuss their research with prisoners enrolled in the undergraduate program. Dr. Catherine Warwick, who is Associate Director of the Center, has been there. Um, I'm going to identify yourself. Where are you? <laughs> Rory, like actually, a lot of people in this room, I am coached to take turns out in prison. <laughs> she, uh, where am I? In addition, she runs a service learning uh, course that provides Villanova students with the opportunity to serve as literacy tutors in the prison. So today she's speaking on uh, Islam in U.S. prisons. Please help me in welcoming. Thank you so much. Um, in all honesty, I was actually trying to kind of cajole um, one of the men who has uh, participated in the Villanova degree program at Graterford, who's since been released. There are are a number of them who've been released um, over the course of my tenure with the program, and I was trying to get um, one or two of them to come in and speak, but it didn't work. So either we need to dangle more money or something. <laughs> um, and kind of as, as a sort of filling in what, what was so um, kind of an introduction is that I'm a sociologist, and principally I'm interested in social inequality. But the institutional vector through which I study inequality is the criminal justice system and in particular the prison system. 
And that work has taken me to prisons, uh, U.S. prisons, um, in a ton of states. And so, um, uh, like I did my undergraduate, or I mean, did my graduate work at Delaware, and I was in the Delaware prison system for quite a while. Prior to that, as an undergraduate, I was doing, I was a research assistant to a faculty member who was studying violence at uh, Lewisburg, which is a federal penitentiary just um, in the center of the state, roughly. Uh, and then after I got my PhD, I took a job at Northern Illinois University where um, I was appointed, the, the Illinois prison system at the time was actually under control of the Illinois court system because of unconstitutional conditions in those prisons. And so what the Illinois courts did was uh, appoint a number of prison monitors. And what it meant was that we, on a regular basis, traveled to prisons all over Illinois and uh, literally walked the cell blocks talking to prisoners, talking to staff members about conditions that they were confronted with um, in that prison system, like over a 10-year period roughly. So I've been in those systems. I've spent time in the Louisiana prison system, in California, and South Carolina. Um, and so I've had a pretty, as prison researchers go, I've had a pretty broad exposure. Um, and through the course of those travels, I've spent a lot of time talking to both men and women about their experiences in the system, uh, their political critiques of the system, uh, how they maintain their own faith, um, their own sense of perseverance as they endure the various struggles that ensue inside the system and outside as they, as they try to maintain connection to community and family um, while serving time. And so as I was thinking about this talk today and thinking about what probably is at this point hundreds of conversations, um, I, thought, I thought a sort of good entry point into this dialogue was actually an exchange I had with a prisoner who is a, um, he was a participant in the Villanova program at Greaterford. And at the point that we began, began our conversation, he had done about 14 years into a sentence, most of it in um, Greaterford, but, but he's taken a turn in some other Pennsylvania state prisons, including prisons that are um, farther north and um, with a much more uh, hostile uh, correctional officer staff. And so, as we're talking about his experiences, one thing that it became very important for him that I understand was his faith and his identity as a black Muslim. And he made a distinction repeatedly to me that, that he took on an identity as a Muslim on the streets prior to his period of incarceration, but it was only during incarceration that he became, as he defined it, a practicing Muslim. And he was um, very proud of that and very proud of the fact that at a certain point, about seven years into his bid, he had been named a member of the security staff for the black Muslims in the prison. And that being named a, a, a member of the security staff went not just to his own personal honor, which um, being a named member meant it was a sort of recognition of his intellect and his discipline as a Muslim and also his physical strength. But he was also prideful of, of what it meant that an organization in the prison had, had in essence taken some level of institutional power back, that they had taken on the mantle of self-discipline and community-based control, and so that they were policing themselves and operating in a way, in the way that they were sort of framing it as outside of the state. Um, so we began a correspondence about 14 years into that bid, and that correspondence lasted for several years until he was released. And, um, and we were talking at one point about his faith, and uh, he sent me one day, in a very uncharacteristically short letter, uh, two quotes from Malcolm, um, and he, he said, you know, I've been struggling to kind of sum up the appeal of Islam in this, to me personally and in this prison and in this prison system more generally, and I actually don't think I can do it as well as Malcolm. So I wanted to start with sharing these, these particular quotes. 
And um, so the first one, I am a Muslim because it's a religion that teaches you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It teaches you to respect everybody and treat everybody right. But it also teaches you that if someone steps on your toes, chop off their foot. And I carry my religious acts with me all the time. <laughs> um, and the second, there is nothing in our book, the Quran, that teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, be peaceful, be courteous, respect everyone. But if someone lays a hand on you, send them to the cemetery. And um, please understand that, that this is part of Malcolm's humor, and it's also very much uh, part of Khalil's, the prisoner that I was uh, corresponding with. And, um, and as I reflect on a lot of these conversations, I realize that probably the single most important um, component of Islam, Islam's popularity and its endurance in the prison system is Malcolm. Um, and Malcolm's uh, philosophy as it, as it moves over time and, and the sort of accounts of Malcolm, of course, are contested and, and used in, in a, for a variety of political ends and self-serving ends. Um, but what is particularly um, compelling to a lot of prisoners in the U.S. is uh, Malcolm's black nationalism and ultimately his pan-Africanism. And also, in ways that are, are connected, some of the traditions of Elijah Muhammad and earlier forebears of African-American Islam, um, particularly claims that Islam is the, is the natural religion of African people. Um, and I don't want to overstate that too much because that is a source of debate in, in prison as elsewhere. Um, but beyond offering prisoners an alternative to Christianity, which is often framed as the religion of slavery um, and colonialism, African-American um, variants of Islam speak to the black experience in the U.S. or, ha or have at least been um, used to speak to the black experience in the U.S. and, and um, also political self-determination, economic self-sufficiency, community organization, the ability to mobilize a social movement effectively, and also then, of course, the connections that it offered to spiritual salvation and a broader base from which to locate one's own identity and one's history in the world. As uh, another man that I spoke to quite a bit said, Islam is dignity. Islam is self-esteem, especially among people who've been told that they've had nothing and are nothing, because the discipline of Islam demands and fosters strength. So I want to speak about Islam today in a way that is quite distinct from a lot of uh, media accounts of Islam in the prison system, particularly media accounts in the wake of 9-11. Of and I'm not a scholar of religion, so I want to um, comment this from my own angle, which is a much more socio-legal angle. And um, part of the socio-legal element is also the sort of strength and endurance and popularity of Islam in prison. And so with that, I want to take you back to the 1960s. And um, P.S., I'm not a big fan of PowerPoint, so this is like creativity for me right here. <laughs> Putting the case name in italics. It's about all I can muster. I have one really poor photo in here as well. <coughs> so this is a case, Fullwood versus Clemmer. And it's a unique case for reasons that I'll explain after we get through it. But in 1962, the Federal District Court uh, for the District of Columbia agrees to hear a case that is brought by William T.X. Fullwood, who is a member of the Nation of Islam. And at the time, he's a prisoner in Lorton Reformatory, which is located in Virginia, and then later uh, transfers to the D.C. jail. <coughs> and he files this case against Clemmer, who is the director of the Department of Corrections in, in that area. And the claim that he's making is that he is suffering religious discrimination. And from the beginning, this case is unique because there aren't that many prisoner-initiated lawsuits in the early 1960s. It doesn't exist. Um, so here's Fullwood's story. He becomes aware of Islam 
when he is in the U.S. Army and he's stationed in Korea, and that's about in 1954. He doesn't con convert until 1959, and he, at the time of his conversion, he is in jail and he's awaiting trial. And as the court notes in his case, um, he was converted to the version of Islam that was embodied by Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, which the court sort of beliefly notes, um, beliefly notes that they don't know if it's an authentic variant of the Islamic religion. But the Nation of Islam at the time of Fullwood's conversion was booming. So they have temples in 28 states. There are thousands of card-carrying members. And in the year that he converts, there are several other Muslims, black Muslims, in the jail who are requesting permission from Clemmer to hold religious services in the facility. And it was not an outrageous request that they were making. Uh, prison management in this particular facility encouraged inmates to participate in religious services. They believed that religious participation was connected to rehabilitation and redemption, um, although the official position was that, that those participation in religious life in the institution wasn't compulsory, it was voluntary. And uh, from the perspective of administrators, they saw themselves as, as non-sectarian, so they weren't pushing people to participate in any religion at all or, or, or in a particular brand of religion. The jail itself was overwhelmingly Protestant. Um, and this is, again, in the language of the court. There were approximately 1,700 inmates in all, uh, 15 of whom were quote-unquote colored, and 225 were white, and about 50 inmates were Muslim, all of whom were African-American. Services, religious services in that prison were conducted by both volunteer and paid religious leaders, including full-time Catholic and Protestant chaplains. And they had separate services for Catholics, Jews, Protestants, and then within Protestantism, Lutherans, Unitarians, Christian scientists, and the Salvation Army appears there as well. The number of prisoners who participate in religious services at the institution at any time can range from 15 people to 600 people, and there is no institutional policy that limits the number of people who can participate in a religious service. Furthermore, public funds were underwriting most of the, of the services, the religious programming in the institution. So that included paying for religious staff, the full-time staff, as well as paying honorariums to a rabbi. Uh, the prison also purchased a chapel, or constructed a chapel with public funds, and it was large enough to hold three services at any given time. And furthermore, the, the, uh, there were public funds that were used to buy uh, religious medals and distribute them to prisoners who wanted them. Um, and that, those medals were, were distributed to Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish prisoners. Now, the Muslim experience at the jail is quite different from everyone else's experience. Um, so, in the year that Fullwood converted, 1959, he and other Muslims made multiple requests of Clemmer to allow them to have religious services. And after about six months of investigation, Clemmer denies the request. And we'll talk about that <laughs> in a second. Um, and then they make subsequent appeals, and Clemmer continues to deny those appeals. They were also denied access to a Muslim minister, even though a minister from the D.C. area had offered to come out and hold services or hold education programs free of charge. They also did not have access to religious medals. Um, those medals weren't provided by the state. Those medals weren't offered for sale in commissary. So instead, a number of Muslims fashioned their own medals, and they did it um, using the top of a tube of toothpaste and um, part of a toothbrush. When the Prison staff discovered those religious medals on the Muslim inmates. They confiscated them and charged them with violations of, of uh, disciplinary or a disciplinary infraction that had consequences for their sentence and consequences for where they were housed in the prison. Mr. Fullwood himself was denied the opportunity to correspond with Elijah Muhammad on the premise that Elijah Muhammad was not a family member 
nor did they have a pre-existing relationship prior to Fullwood's incarceration. And Mr. Fullwood lost his subscription to the Los Angeles Herald-Dispatch. Um, it was a newspaper that he had access to and, and um, legally within the rules of the jail. But uh, Clemmer, when investigating the Muslims in the prison, began reading that particular newspaper and found that it contained a column from Elijah Muhammad and Clemmer objected to uh, some of the things that Elijah Muhammad was, was saying in there and felt that he was going to agitate both black and white inmates um, with the content. So the threshold incident comes in May of, uh, May 25th in 1960, just shortly after Fulwood's uh, converted. So Muslims in the prison are in the jail are denied permission to hold services. And so what they do is go out into the recreation yard and are meeting informally with one another. That was consistent with um, the DOC's guidelines. You were allowed to do that. And um, provided <laughs> you're allowed to meet informally with one another in the rec yard, provided you A, did not attract attention, and, um, and B, did not uh, cause any disturbances in that yard. And the DOC policy also allowed you to speak with loud voices while you were in the athletic yard. So on the day of the incident, about 15 Muslims, including Fullwood, congregate in a far corner. Um, there's like these uh, stands where you can watch like whatever the football game is or whatever. So they're congregating in a far corner of the stands and there is, I, I don't remember if it's a baseball game or a football game, but there's an athletic game, an athletic contest being performed uh, by white prisoners. So the ball game is playing. That is loud. There is a loudspeaker in the rec yard that is pumping music. And, um, and so at that point, the Muslims uh, elevate their voices to, so that they can hear one another. And they begin discussing uh, the preachings of Elijah Muhammad. And as the court notes, that some of the content of the speech included occasional references to whites as liars, thieves, and murderers, and that whites could not be trusted. Now, there were no altercations. White prisoners who were playing on the field reported having heard it, but there were no altercations as a result of um, that meeting. However, prison officials who were on site contended that it generated racial tension and resentment that, and that it was of a character that would breach the peace in the prison. So all 15 Muslim inmates were charged with uh, a violation of the disturbance rule that says it is against the law to engage in a demonstration, disturbance, strike, or act of resistance either alone or in combination with others that will tend to breach the peace or which constitutes disorderly conduct. And for that, they were all awarded lengthy times in solitary. And that becomes the trigger event for this case. Now, Clemmer contends that, or he conceded, that Mr. Fullwood was devoted to his faith, that this wasn't a sort of frivolous lawsuit where he was claiming uh, a religious identity that he didn't actually um, deserve, so to speak. And Fullwood also says in his testimony to the court that Fullwood's participation in Islam, quote unquote, in some way is related to increasing his status as a quote-unquote Negro. However, I am denying religious participation for the Muslims based on two rationales. First, the Nation of Islam is a political organization and not a religious one. Second, the Nation of Islam teaches racial hatred. Such teaching is inflammatory and would likely give rise to dis disturbance and disorder and hence would not promote the overall welfare of the prison population. And they had an expert come in and testify against the Nation of Islam um, the expert acknowledged that a variety of different religious faiths had preached uh, racial discrimination and racial hatred at various points in time, but 
um, this expert thought that there was something particularly pernicious and enduring about the nation of Islam and its relation to what they referred to as racial hatred. The court decides in favor of Fullwood. It's not entirely a slam dunk, but um, no one expected this decision. What the court says is this, that under the freedom of religion in this country, a person has an absolute right to embrace the religious belief of his or her choice. And the Constitution doesn't define what a religion is. And in fact, there's no clear agreement on what constitutes a religion. Secondly, it's not the job of the court to evaluate the merits or fallacies of any given religious doctrine or set of beliefs. And third, the court sort of falls back on the following. It's sufficient to say that one concept of religion calls for a belief in the existence of a supreme being controlling the destiny of men. The concept of religion is met by Muslims in that they believe in Allah, a supreme being, and as one true God. It follows, therefore, that the Muslim faith is a religion. That statement was profound. In an American legal arena, to claim that Islam was a legitimate religion flew in the face of, of so much popular rhetoric um, and political backlash against Islam. Uh, so they were granted basic rights to practice their religion in that uh, particular facility. They did lose on, um, or, or Fulwood lost on, being able to correspond with Elijah Muhammad, and he wasn't able to get his uh, newspaper subscription back. But Fulwood versus Clemmer, um, like, had consequences for everyone. First, of course, as I said, it recognized Islam as a legitimate religion. And secondly, it mandates equal protection for the relig religious rights of, of Muslims, even those who are incarcerated. But the case is so much more significant for prisoners, particularly for black prisoners. And, and for that, I want to sort of set the stage about, about where we are in American prison history, the sort of institutional history of the prison at the moment that this case is decided. So, um, you know, institutions have their own eras and how they sort of mark off their own histories. And um, scholars of the prison system refer to the period from the 1930s right up until roughly the early 1960s as the Big House era. And architecturally, the Big House era is, is characterized by, this is Sing Sing, and I might as well have just thrown up um, Greaterford on here because Greaterford was built in the same period. Um, but these are just very austere facilities. Um, and so, you, like the, you know, these have the sort of, they're just foreboding when you pull up into them and they have the high granite walls and the, and the guard towers. Um, usually it's two-tier cell blocks, and oftentimes those cells don't even have a window into the outside. The cell is a, on the inside wall. Um, so in, in the moment of the big house era, there's a couple of things that are happening within American Islam. Um, at the end of the era, of course, is when, is when Fullwood wins his case. But prior to this, this is also when Malcolm is serving his sentence in the Massachusetts state prison system, and he converts to Islam. And, and so just so you have a time point for that, um, Malcolm is serving from 1946 through 1952. And prior to that, Elijah Muhammad is sent to federal prison uh, following a conviction for failing to register for the draft. And so Elijah Muhammad is in federal prison from 1942 to 1946. And prior to that, Wallace D. Farad uh, was preaching to growing black audiences about the lost foundation of Islam uh, in the 1930s, was really drawing uh, significant crowds at that moment. And, and he disappears in 1934. So, the Big House era in the North looks different than it does in the South. And so you get these very imposing institutions. In the South, which um, is still emerging from its own economic bankruptcy from the Civil War, in the South they can't afford facilities like this. And so what you see in the South is the chain gangs. You all have like a mental image of, of chain gangs. 
but both spaces are characterized by racial apartheid, um, high levels of brutality, and significant increases in the number of African American prisoners, who are still wildly outnumbered by whites. And so even if we go to 1960, at the end of this era, African Americans are still less than 25% of the US prison populations. But their numbers jump appreci appreciably in this moment. And that has consequences for control in the institutions. So control in the institutions, we often think of prisons as sort of a zero-sum game. Power is held in the hands of the keepers, and the kept have no power. But actually, in the big house era, and the other sort of um, thing to note in the big house era, this is the 1930s. Uh, what else happens in the 1930s of significance economically? Great Depression. And so um, prisons prior to the 1930s primarily had prisoners working throughout the course of their day. But because of the, of the Depression, there was sort of this claim that prisoners were taking away labor from, um, from law-abiding citizens. And so prison labor is eliminated altogether. And so what you have is prisoners spending entire days in their cells. And this is going to create control problems for staff. And so what staff do to increase the ratio of staff to prisoner is to allow some power to flow from prison staff and administrators to a select group of prisoners. And this is referred to, depending on the region of the country that you're in, it's referred to as the building tender system. It means that inmates were given the power to punish, surveil, and supervise other inmates. In a lot of instances, they had access to weapons. They had access to keys. Um, and if you do a quick Google search of building tender in the South, you'll see um, inmates sitting on horseback with rifles overseeing other inmates in the fields. And you probably don't have to guess the racial <laughs> the characteristics of those white inmates who are empowered to oversee other inmates, right? Um, so black prisoners in this moment are not simply at the mercy of prison staff. They are also at the mercy of white prisoners. They are assigned the most uh, dangerous and menial tasks in the prison to the extent that there are tasks at all. They are unable to acquire property because even when they do, what are the consequences for white prisoners who take it? They have virtually no access to the law or to the outside world. And so the Big House era represents something of a shell game, because what the Big House era does is preserve slavery, the social arrangements of slavery. And so it just takes slavery and hides it behind a wall in the North. In the South, it looks exactly identical. People are still laboring in the fields. Um, and so there could be probably no more grim or despairing set of conditions for African Americans than that which they find themselves in if they're incarcerated in this particular historical moment. So there would, no, there would be no forecasting of a Fullwood decision, for example. And as you might recall, if you've um, read different uh, biographies of Malcolm, that Malcolm gets retaliated against in a variety of ways um, when prison staff become aware that he's converted to Islam. And Malcolm, by the way, was, was this very scholarly um, prisoner for much of his bid. But he gets transferred to another prison um, when officials realize uh, or, or decide that he's converted. Um, and they do things like when they, when they make the connection that Muslim inmates don't eat pork, then they make sure that they serve him food that ha delivered on utensils that has um, been used to process meat. And by the end of his bid, Malcolm is pretty much um, personally limiting himself to bread and cheese, which has um, health consequences for him that he suffers throughout the remainder of his life. And I also want to emphasize that there is no concept of prisoner rights in this moment. Nobody's thinking, this isn't fair, I'm going to file a lawsuit. There, there is no access to the court. 
Um, and so I want to talk about that element of, of the Big House era as well, which is the, the court's position vis-a-vis -vis the prison system is referred to as the hands-off doctrine. So courts weren't involved in prisons at all at any point in this nation's history until Fullwood, roughly speaking. And that the reason for that is because prisoners had been declared slaves of the state. And the origin of that particular declaration is um, primarily in the 13th Amendment. And so the 13th Amendment, which it sort of officially bans slavery, um, but for one thing, which is punishment for a crime. And so it leaves the sort of category of slavery in play for this um, select group of people. And, sec and then secondly, there's a, um, a case law piece that shores up what the interpretation of the 13th Amendment is. And so this comes out of uh, Virginia. And in this case, uh, the court notes that a prisoner has, as a consequence of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all of his personal rights, except those which the law in its humanity accords him. He is, for the time being, a slave of the state. Further, courts don't want to interfere in the administration of prisons, in part because of the separation of powers. And so over uh, 80 years after the decision in Ruffin, we get a federal judge that says in Strode v. Swope, we think it's well settled that it's not the job of the courts to interfere in the treatment and discipline of uh, people who are incarcerated. And so we're going to just leave that to the, the discretion of administrators. Those administrators in the big house era were of the opinion that prisoners don't have rights. They have privileges, and privileges aren't protected. Privileges are given and taken away um, without, any, without any need to sort of offer a logic or a rationale for it. Um, so given that, the hands-off doctrine, the significance to African Americans and, and particularly to uh, Muslims of the Fullwood decision is that it, it reverses power, not completely of course, but it pushes back against a system that is entirely totalizing. It is unprecedented. And so some of the promise of Islam and the promise of the nation of Islam in this moment as a political movement and as a counter to racial inequality suddenly becomes entirely plausible, that, that through discipline and intellect and community, you can swing an ax. You can swing an ax on a system that has never bent. That's the, I, can't, like, I can't even convey. The sort of ripple effects of that are still in play today. So I can still go into prison today. And I would be hard pressed to sort of do this with a court case um, on campus. But I can still go into to prison today and say, um, what, are what are Supreme Court cases that, that you remember that have an impact on you? And Fullwood will come up again and again. Not the case for a lot of criminal justice scholars or um, prison scholars, but absolutely for prisoners. They know Fullwood because Fullwood punched back. Fullwood was, if somebody steps on your neck, get up and put them in the ground. Um, let's see. What so, I, so it is... Um, it is Muslim inmates who are leading the charge. They literally create prisoner rights in this country. Um, the, the concept itself wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for them. And it almost single-handedly changes their position in the prison system itself, in the social order of the prison system itself. Uh, so I don't want to go through all of the cases, but I just want to uh, give you a sense of, of how this kind of chipping away happens, how people who are slaves of the state, and you'll recall um, from Dred Scott, anybody remember Dred Scott? Dred Scott says that slaves are not entitled to have access to the court in this country, so it's a courtesy we're giving you a hearing, but if you're a slave, 
you don't have access to courts. So how, if inmates are declared slaves, how is it that you manage to wrangle your way into the court system? And, and in essence, it's, it's two cases. Um, the first is Coffin v. Reichard, which sort of passes by without much of even a ripple. Um, and what happened in Coffin is the court ruled that prisoners who were challenging the conditions of their confinement could file those charges or, or run that through the courts using federal habeas corpus law. Now traditionally, federal habeas corpus law is used to challenge the legality of your confinement. So you got sent to prison, but that it, it actually something happened at your trial that was a constitutional violation, and so you should have never been sent there in the first place. It's never been used to challenge conditions of confinement. For example, I've been sent to solitary and they're not feeding me. For example, I have a medical condition and I'm not receiving treatment for it. Um, what, what Coffin did was say that, that prisoners could use habeas, even though, quote unquote, they are lawfully in custody, if those prisoners have been, and I'm paraphrasing, deprived of some right, some right to which they're lawfully entitled while in their confinement, the deprivation of which serves to make their imprisonment more burdensome. And so in this one statement, what the court says as a pushback is, first, that prisoners have rights. There's more than privileges at play here. Prisoners have rights. And secondly, if those rights, if, if those rights rise to the level of sort of a cognizable constitutional claim, they can file under federal habeas corpus. Um, but like I said, that, that decision goes by. Nobody's really paying attention except uh, for a bunch of Muslim inmates, black Muslims in Illinois. And again, these guys um, were incredibly scholarly and were paying attention to the courts and it had the success in Fullwood. And so Cooper versus Pate in 1964 is um, the result of a, of a prisoner who is incarcerated in Illinois who discovers the um, Coffin versus Reichard case. Now, the, the trick here is that filing those federal habeas corpus lawsuits, you've got to like run, you've got to sort of run your case first through the state courts and exhaust it at the state level before you get to play ball in the federal court system. But if you're complaining about conditions in Kentucky, prison conditions in Kentucky, and your complaint is being heard by Kentucky judges, your chances of success are A, great, B, even, <laughs> C, you're screwed. And the answer is C, you're screwed. So what the strategy here in the Cooper case is, is is it possible for us to get directly into the federal system, bypass the state courts, bring conditions of confinement right into the federal legal system and have our day in court that way? And so once again, we have a state, Illinois, that's denying uh, Muslims the opportunity to hold religious services and, and have access to, to religious materials. Um, and it was done solely based on um, information from the Intelligence Division of the Chicago Police Department, who shared with the director of the Department of Corrections in Illinois that, quote unquote, black Muslims are dangerous. What the court decided is that absolutely, prisoners can have access to the federal courts, um, and they, the way that they do it is through the Civil Rights Act of 1871. Some of you who are f familiar with your history and, s and sort of American slavery jurisprudence and what works out of it is this is also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. Um, and there's a section of, of the Civil Rights Act of 1871 called Section 1983. Section 1983, every person who is subjected to the jurisdiction of the U.S. and suffers deprivations of any rights, 
privileges, or immunities as secured by the Constitution may seek redress through legal action against any party liable for the deprivations. This means you, challenge, you can challenge the conditions of institutional life and not just the fact of your custody. And secondly, you can proceed directly to federal court, so you don't need to exhaust state remedies first. And so what the Cooper case does is change the balance of power in the American prison system. And in fact, it's the Cooper case that lands me many, many years later in Illinois, after Illinois' prison system has been declared, the entire prison system is declared unconstitutional. Because now, by virtue of this case, and by virtue of prisoners educating themselves in the law and having access to the federal judiciary, it creates this flood of lawsuits through which now the courts are going to be coming involved, whether they want to or not, to some extent in the management of American prisons. And so the invisibility of what happened inside prisons suddenly disappears. Uh, and I want you to be able to talk, so I don't want to go on like endlessly. Um, but it's not as if the end of this story is a particularly uh, rosy one, but, but it's very important for understanding the strength and the popularity and the endurance of Islam in the prison system. Um, because what everybody understands, even prisoners coming in today, is that Muslims, by virtue of their social organization and their um, political skill set, were able to wield their, the law to their own ends uh, to get Islam recognized as a religion, to get access to religious materials, to hold services, to have improved access to litigation, to delegitimate the practice of punishing prisoners purely on the basis of their religion. But there's considerable pushback because prisons are battles over power after all. And so in a very famous ethnography from sociologist Jerry Jacobs, um, where he's looking at a prison stateville in Illinois in the decades following uh, this, uh, the Cooper versus Pate decision, he says, it's impossible to understand the vehemence and determination with which the prison resisted every Muslim demand, no matter how insignificant, except by understanding that what seemed to be at stake was the very survival of an authoritarian regime. The officials continued by purging Muslims from their job, blocking their legitimate prison activities, and suppressing them whenever possible. Not surprisingly, many of the leaders ended up in segregation. More recently, uh, uh, Pew survey that was done in 2012, and it's a survey of um, just about 750 prison chaplains, found that over half of those chaplains who were surveyed reported that Muslim prisoners were the most underserved of any religious group in the prison. And in, in describing the nature of how they were underserved, they noted in particular the lack of chaplains and the lack of understanding among uh, administrators and prison employees about the religion itself. And of course, in the wake of 9-11, earlier fears about Muslims as dangerous because they were quote-unquote gang get resurrected within the specter of international terrorism. Nonetheless, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't undermine Islam in the prison system. A 2008 report on the, uh, from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and Religious Freedom found that Muslim inmates between 2000 and 2007 submitted the largest number of discrimination complaints of any religious group in prison. They made the largest number of religious accommodation requests between 1997 and 2008, and initiated the largest number of federal lawsuits um, under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000. And I want to come back to that because we just had a, a ruling in January. Further, the size of the um, uh, Muslim population has grown. And I don't um, very often put much stock in, in estimates of uh, populations in prison because there's so much variation in state reporting and how people get identified. But um, the number that circulates is 350,000 
uh, Muslim prisoners in the U.S., which is about 15% of the prison population. And again, from that tw uh, 2012 Pew study, uh, chaplains were estimating that Islam was the fastest growing uh, religion in prison with about 30 to 40,000 uh, conversions annually. In general, there's not a ton of research done in the U.S. Uh, on uh, Islam and prison other than that which is sort of stoked by uh, fears of international terrorism. And that research, by the way, doesn't find any meaningful set of connections between um, somehow funding or, or um, creating uh, seeds in prison uh, to support international terrorism. But of the, of the uh, research that exists, it seems that for the most part, Islam is a stabilizing force in the social order of the prison. Um, so uh, uh, Muslim prisoners tend to have high levels of internal discipline, um, high levels, of course, of desistance from substance abuse, and Islam itself serves as um, alternate means of dispute resolution. Um, and some, uh, some studies report, uh, for example, in Attica, that, that Muslim inmates were sort of leading the charge to um, mitigate violence and death in that particular riot, and, and another one that happened in Sing Sing in 1983. So I want to end with a case that when I, so I, I'm teaching in prison right now, I'm teaching an introduction to a sociology course at Greaterford, and um, I had broken my foot, so I was supposed to start the semester at the time we all started the semester, and I got delayed. And in the course of my delay, a Supreme Court decision came down. And so when I went in there two weeks ago, they were all um, hot to know how closely I was following that particular case. Um, and so the case is Holt versus Hobbs. It is sort of the Hobby Lobby case of prison um, because it picks, I apologize for that, but I just, I mean, it was like right there for me, and so I had to take it. Um, <laughs> The case involves that, that federal law, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And what that law, the law was passed in 2000, and what the law said is the government can't impose a substantial burden on religious exercise of an institutionalized person unless the government uh, can demonstrate that the burden is the least restrictive means for furthering some compelling state interest. So this case comes to us out of Arkansas. Um, Mr. Holt, who uh, has adopted the name Abdul Malik Muhammad, but the court doesn't recognize that, is a prisoner in the Arkansas state prison system. He is a devout Muslim, and based on his religious belief, he believes that he's obliged to um, continue to grow his beard without cutting it. That runs counter to the Arkansas prison policy. Arkansas prison policy said that no prisoner uh, may grow facial hair with one exemption, and that's a medical exemption, so Arkansas said, if you had a certain dermatological um, condition, and I can't even imagine what that is, but I, I, I want to know if they've listed what, what counts, <laughs> like bad pimple, um, you can grow facial hair, but it can't be more than a quarter of an inch. And so he actually requests a religious exemption to the um, grooming policy in the prison. They deny him that religious exemption, but he's paying attention to a case that's just come out of California. And what California said was, all right, um, we will allow you to grow your facial hair, but it can't go longer than a half an inch. So what he comes back to Arkansas prison officials with is this. Look, I believe I'm supposed to grow my facial hair, period. But what I will do to acknowledge your position is if I could just be allowed to grow at a half an inch that's consistent with this other ruling, um, it, everything should be copacetic, except it's Arkansas, so it's not. Um, so they reject his... Um, they reject his... Um, claim and then they tell him, look, if, if you grow your facial hair, you're going to be in violation of the grooming policy. Violation of the grooming policy is going to have consequences for the back end of your sentence and it's going to have consequences um, for where you do your time in this prison, meaning that you're going to be sent to solitary confinement, which is um, not a benign threat.
Um, so under the federal law, what he's got to demonstrate, he's got to demonstrate as a petitioner two things. First, that the religious practice that he wants to engage in is grounded in a sincerely held religious belief. And secondly, that the government policy, the government action substantially burdens um, his ability to freely exercise his religion. And he establishes both of those things. The burden then at that point shifts to the government. And what the government has to show is two things. First, that they are adopting the least restrictive means of second, um, furthering a compelling government interest. Anyone want to take a guess at what Arkansas articulates as their compelling government interest in this case? Go on, Catherine Warwick. Are they concerned that people are going to hide things in their beard? Yes. Um, the beard, the half-inch beard, is, <laughs> um, is going to hold contraband. <coughs> now, does anyone see any problems with the logic of that, even allowing for a particularly um, tenacious beard. <laughs> Arkansas doesn't have restrictions on your head of hair. Um, you can grow your hair in Arkansas longer than a half an inch. And as one of the, the justices in this case says, Arkansas doesn't require prisoners to shave their head bald, nor does it require them to walk around barefoot. Um, so it's hard to believe that the compelling government interest here is really about contraband in a beard that is of a half an inch. So then Arkansas says, all right, we have a secondary concern here, and that is this. What if we let him grow his beard, and then he quickly shaves it, but we only have a picture of him with his beard, and then he shaves it and escapes, or goes to a section of the prison that he's not supposed to be in? So that's what they're going to rest the case on. <laughs> um, <laughs> and go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Which the court actually points out. And so while the court, like the court's willing to walk down the path with Arkansas about a changing appearance. Um, they say exactly that, that if he quick shaves his hair, then you've got the same problem. And in fact, why couldn't you? Because you're supposed to, if you're going to infringe on a religious practice, you've got to do it in the least restrictive means possible. Why couldn't you take some before and after photos and just put that on the prison ID that the guy walks around with? To which, which, by the way, is what Arkansas does with those inmates with the dermatological condition who have the quarter-inch beard. Um, finally, there's another point here, and that is that 40 states allow prisoners to grow beards, often longer than a half an inch. The states that don't, notably, are southern states. Um, so this is a case that was a slam dunk. It was a unanimous decision in um, favor of Mr. Holt. And it was one that when I went back into prison uh, just a couple of weeks ago, people were excited about. And so I said to them, now, the, the people that I'm interacting with have had beards the entire time that I've been going to prison in Pennsylvania, which has been since like 2006 or something. So I was confused at the level of, of excitement um, because it didn't apply to them. And so I'm actually like sort of second guessing myself. So I'm, I'm like, is, did Pennsylvania institute some kind of grooming policy or something? And they said, no. I'm like, well, how long, are you, how, can, how long can you grow your beards? And they're like, oh, well, there's restrictions on how long it can be, and it's discretionary, but we can grow our beards. I'm like, so why are you, why are you excited about this case? And they're like, you don't understand why we're excited about this case? So we won. We won this case, right? 
And that, that's compelling. And, and it's compelling to me as, as a student of inequality, as somebody who's interested in, in social inequality and, and who studies it in um, probably the most depressing of, of institutional places. Uh, that to see a sort of reversal of power, at least on some level, and, and the meaning of that is, um, is profound. And it's profound for me as a researcher, it's profound for them as people who are making meaning out of their um, time in this, in this institution. So I will stop there. How long have I prattled on? Um, shall we talk? <laughs> Thank you, guys. Go on. <laughs> um, I'm curious, um, the way you've been talking about um, performances, you've focused, I think, almost entirely on male prisoners. Yes. Um, which is sadly surprising given the prison system. But I'm wondering if you learned about any differences or similarities in female prisoners. Well, this is like a great send up. And like, I wish I could say that you were a shill in the audience because I just wrote a book on women, women's prisons. Um, <laughs> Feel free to buy my book. Uh, <laughs> so you can look it up online. I won't be so crass as to put a slide up of it. Um, but here's the damning thing about my book, especially in the wake of, of this little talk. I was meeting about, when I was doing the research, so I was in, um, doing research in women's prisons in the mid-1990s and then through the, the turn of the century. And late, like, within the last couple of years, I met with a, a young sociologist at Penn who was herself doing a dissertation and wanted to understand religious participation in women's institutions. And as she's talking about it, I realize I never saw Islam in the state prison that I was studying, the women's prison. Now, I don't know if it, it's because it wasn't on my radar or if it's because it wasn't there, but I suspect it's because it wasn't there. And that was an institution that really had a legacy of Christianity um, and that power flowed from Christianity. So that your access to staff members in that particular prison, if you didn't want to go through bureaucratic procedures of filing complaint after complaint and going up the chain of command to get to the warden, the way you got to the warden and the deputy warden was to participate in Bible study. So whether you were a Christian or not, everyone, everyone in that prison practically participated in Bible study so they could pull the warden aside and say, hey, I need assistance with X, Y, and Z. Um, but it, it's something that needs to be, I know that this, this um, woman is embarking on the study, she, and actually Marilyn doesn't want her to She's, her research is in Maryland, but Maryland doesn't want her to do it. Um, but the answer to that is I don't know. And, um, and I feel very awful about that. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was interesting that the courts for that, I don't know, 100-year period from the end of the Civil War to the like, 1960s, it didn't feel any compulsion, any duty to, over, to have you know, checks and balances for what was going on in the prison systems. No. Um, which tells you something about the sort of status of, of prisoner, because prisoners aren't seen as citizens. They're seen as slaves. So, they, so by virtue of that cultural category, you're invisible. Um, and, and so it was very much like, we're not going to tinker in this. And there were, you know, like, there, there were different sort of moments where abuses were coming out. Some of them coming out of... There would have been abuses of the white prisoners as well. That Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but there's, just, there's no way to get into courts. And actually, one thing about women is that women prisoners don't get into the courts until the 1980s because they don't have a law library. So, how, so even with all this law happening, 
how do you file a lawsuit if, you, if you're not, because people aren't coming from circumstances where they're like, oh, hi, family members, can you swing uh, money for an attorney beyond the attorney who's handling my appeal? Like, there's conditions in this prison that are unconstitutional. Let's, let's hire somebody and run this up. Nobody has that kind of money. So uh, virtually all of these lawsuits are filed by prisoners who are educating themselves about American law. But if you don't have a law library, you can't even get into play. Um, and so, so there's no, not only is it uh, like just not on the radar of the courts, but it's not prisoners themselves. The only way to push back, I mean, the sort of strategy is either to have access to, to goods that would be moving through the institution or, you know, sort of physical strength or um, be in with the administrators. In terms of people going in, no, I don't know. Oh, 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 oh. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, and there's not a lot of good. I mean, most of the data is just making a distinction between um, the kind of police stops that are happening to white people and the kind of police stops that are happening to black people. And so, one thing that we know that happens to black people that doesn't have so um, everybody gets traffic stopped, and African Americans are traffic stopped at approximately the, the similar rate as whites. Um, but there's a sort of second cat category of police encounter, which is the investigatory stop, which virtually doesn't happen to whites at all, um, but does happen to African Americans. But I don't know within that. Um, with the, and, and there's a whole other category of, of surveillance of, of Islamic communities that is outside of my orbit. Um, I do know that um, what, what Illinois instituted, Illinois created their own intelligence division within the prison system, um, of whom I met with a number. And, th and so at the time I was in the Illinois prison system, it was about like 2,000. And so what Illinois had done was most of the state prisons were maximum security prisons. They uh, created the first supermax prison and then had like uh, another supermax prison that emerged. So what they would do is take everyone who was a quote unquote gang leader or um, identified leader of uh, black Muslim movement, as it was defined in the prison system, and move them to TAMS, which was the supermax facility. Um, and you, the only way you got out of TAMS was after being subject to, to really thorough um, intelligence gathering. And so people would um, monitor your mail. You couldn't have contact with anybody who was in your gang if you were defined as a black Muslim, because the prison system sort of defined that as a gang. You couldn't have contact. If your family members were also Muslims, you couldn't have contact with them in order to get out of TAMS, because you weren't breaking gang ties. Um, and so there was a sort of rampant profiling in that way. <laughs> it could be. I have very narrow jurisdiction. Um, well, <laughs> Try to um, keep it right in my wheelhouse. Rather with your um, area of study, but there's a, what I found really interesting, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading into um, the, kind of the origins of rap and rap culture recently, and there's obviously, uh, going into kind of like the 80s and 90s, and, uh, there was a very close tie with rap and, um, and the prison systems and how sort of the gang relations and all that came about. But there's also, uh, among uh, with rappers, there's a, a very high conversion rate to Islam, and even more interestingly, I have personal friends, I can name at least four of them who rap and have all converted to Islam. And my friends don't have any, have any relation to sort of prison, but I was curious if you knew anything about either the relationship between prison and rap, and whether or not Islam, there were any interplay there or at all. Just if I have a question, I'm curious if you knew anything about 
I almost don't even want to take a stab at it because whatever I would say would be a gross distortion of, um, of likely what somebody would say who's done time. Um, you know, it's certainly the case that, that anyone's musical genre reflects the experiences of their particular group, right? And so part of the experience, part of, um, you know, African-American history in this country is connected to the criminal justice system. And so, you know, when Elijah Muhammad goes to prison, that's a trumped-up charge. Um, he didn't actually, like, Elijah Muhammad wasn't tearing around robbing people or anything like that. It's a sort of a trumped-up charge that happens to a lot of black leaders um, and, and happens to a lot of young black men in general. So, of course, the music reflects um, that experience and the significance of that institution in shaping people's lives and shaping a community. As far as Islam, like, Islam is, is a source of strength. And, uh, you know, there's sort of various um, ways that people come to Islam. But, you know, one, one of the claims is, like, look, Christianity isn't our religion. Christianity is a religion of the colonizer. Christianity is the, is, is the religion designed to pacify the slave. So why do I want to adopt that? And I mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying that. Um, but, but one of the appeals of Islam is that it, 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 it's not connected in the same way to um, the American institution of slavery. <laughs> I hope that answered it. According to a Pew study. Well, is that, I'm just curious, is that um, among blacks and whites? Or um, it's among uh, African Americans and Latinos. Okay. And the um, Latino conversion has been uh, more historically recent. Yeah. Um, if people are either converting or recommitting to um, Islam in prison, when they are released, um, have there been any studies about how this changes their behavior or yeah, I mean, there are there are small scale studies um, that that would suggest that there's a relationship between um, converting to Islam and desistance from uh, uh, substance abuse and um, and criminal participation. But you know, th there's no sort of broad scale study that I'm aware of that that looks at it. But the sort of smaller scale studies are good indicators. But you know, it's obviously there's a lot of things that go into recidivism, and so. It might offer a protective effect, but it, it doesn't, it's not the whole enchilada. Um, and you know, one thing, I, I guess, also to speak to sort of the hip hop question, uh, because if I had Khalil uh, here now, it, he would really offer up this distinction that when he was growing, his uh, mother was Christian, and so he grew up in a Christian household, but on the street as a teenager, um, he, the, the people that he looked up to uh, were black Muslims, men in particular, and he looked up to them um, because what he would describe as their level of organization, the discipline, um, that, that they weren't succumbing to sort of vices on the street, um, as well as the fact that they had a political philosophy. And they had a political philosophy that, that was um, indicting, in particular, white power and racial inequality in this country at its center. Um, but, but the extent of that for a teenager from South Philadelphia is that what he and his friends do is um, decide to adopt uh, Muslim names, so they, they, you know, they like look up possible names for themselves and the meaning of those names, and then they assemble the names. But it, does, it doesn't, it, it becomes an identity, that, not that he's practicing it, but it's something that he wants to connect to. But he doesn't have the mechanism to connect to it until he's in prison. Yeah. Um, how has, um, so in your, I guess in particular, thinking about your interactions in Greater Philly, um, how has everything that's been going on currently with ISIL um, influenced 
how the men practice or how they feel as Muslims in that, in that space. Yeah, I mean, that is, a, and maybe Catherine wants to speak to this because um, uh, <laughs> that is, again, something that I wish I had them here for, in, in part because, um, you know, their own debates about their faith and interpreting doctrine and interpreting world politics and where they shake out on it are such um, lively debates and, and there's so many sort of um, sort of interpretive turns and political bents there that it would be hard for me to summarize it or even adequately um, reproduce it. Um, I just know that that for mo the, the sort of substance of the conversation that I have with them, which might be a function of the, of the fact that I'm not um, a sort of a, a scholar of, of Middle Eastern politics, but most of the, the conversations that I have with them as it's connected to Islam is very much about um, domestic, like, domestic events. But that could be an artifact of me. Yeah. Yeah, um, so a lot of times, like guys in the state prison, first of all, uh, most of the guys that I know in state prison find, find the connection between Islam as they know it and Islam as it's portrayed in the media and as connected to um, international politics, they find it like preposterous. And so guys sort of joke all the time, like, hey, I wish some Saudi cleric would send some money um, into my commissary account so that in 18 years I'll come out and do them a favor. You know, like, th like they just, they, so there's this sort of humor about it where they just, they literally can't understand how these things are even connected in the minds of the public. Um, and, and actually, a lot of the research on Islam in prison is, is that, it, you know, sort of federally sponsored research, like, well, what, you know, like, what's the terrorist connection? Oh, I can't find it. Um, some guys who have done time in, in the feds do make a distinction um, between what goes on in the feds and what goes on in the state prisons. So there would be um, uh, more actors in the federal prison system and, and more varieties of um, Islam and how it connects up to uh, a set of political ideologies. But uh, like e even there, um, there's high levels of, of segregation of those prisoners. And, and, and again, you know, a lot of the mo more notorious cases, like the Jose Padilla case out of Chicago, does anybody remember that? Because that was being trumpeted around for a while. Like Jose Padilla was um, in the Chicago prison system and later travels to Pakistan and is um, picked up because they think he's a, a terrorist plotter. But uh, Jose Padilla's um, conversion doesn't happen until he, uh, he's been out of prison for a couple of years. Um, it wasn't a, a, a conversion that reflected what was going on in the Illinois state prison system. Yeah. What's your experience, like, the interaction between Muslims and Christians and other religious groups in the prison? Have you seen any of that? And, like, what's the tension between religious groups or they mostly get along? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, again, prison is endlessly political. And, um, you know, one of the vectors by which you identify yourself might be your religion, but there are other vectors as well. Um, and, and certainly um, uh, the the Muslim inmates that I know take seriously uh, respect 
of other religious traditions and other re religious faiths. And actually a lot of them, and, and I'm seeing primarily guys who are in the Villanova um, program, so these are guys who are um, characteristically quite scholarly, but, but they're very well versed in other religious traditions and can talk about overlap and, and points of convergence and things like that. So I, I don't ever see sort of um, uh, polemics that, that would be obvious or, or ways that people structure themselves. There's ways in which religion maps onto race and, and then things become more pointed, more heated. <laughs> when you teach a class at Rainford, what do you get, tend to get more of the Muslim quizzes in your class? Yeah. So what you were saying was I'm tending to be more scholarly and disciplined and you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the things that, that um, other sociologists have said about Protestantism, right? Protestantism encourages this kind of scholarly discipline and all that. Um, this is true of Islam as well. And so I would say, and, and Bob, maybe you want to uh, weigh in, but I would say that the clear majority of, of prisoners in the um, Villanova program are Muslim prisoners. Yeah, I'm sorry, and then what's the percentage of the overall prison population? Like, are they, they're not the, the majority of the overall prison population? I don't, at Greaterford, I don't know. That right? What's that? Right, so it might be 50% of the students, but Oh, oh, 15, yeah, yeah, there's the estimate that came out within the last couple of years that, that, um, that there are 15% of the total prison population, but that varies very widely by region, and I also, I just am very suspicious of statistics that are generated within the system itself. Absolutely, and, and, um, and, you know, as far as the Pennsylvania state prison system, um, probably the percentage of Muslim inmates is significantly greater at Greaterford um, than at other places in the state. But I, I, but I don't have that data. I don't even know that they collect it. They can think of all sorts of incentives why they wouldn't. Because they don't fund imams. They have other uh, chaplains in play, but, um, but Muslims, uh, have to do it on their uh, prisoners have to do it on their own, and so why release any data about percentage of prisoners who are identified? Okay. Well, this was most fabulous. I so appreciate all you doing this over the dinner hour. Thank you so much.